While Kubernetes has many benefits, there is often a need for teams to deploy a monitoring and observability stack to troubleshoot issues that happen within the cluster and the applications themselves. ContainIQ is an out-of-the-box solution that allows engineers to monitor the health of their cluster and troubleshoot issues faster. ContainIQ is unique in its approach in that it was built with eBPF in mind and is able to provide an APM-like experience without being an APM. Matt Lenhard is the co-founder and CTO of ContainIQ and joins the show to discuss the future of K8's monitoring and observability, as well as the unique technological approach he is taking with eBPF. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Uh, Pleasure to be on. There is a wide variety of monitoring platforms. And for some reason, Kubernetes monitoring specifically is a domain-specific monitoring challenge that is worth devoting an entire company to. Why is Kubernetes monitoring different than other kinds of monitoring? So the reason we chose to focus on Kubernetes is really because it gives us a lot of the metadata we need for correlations. And that's because core to our product is eBPF. And we, we use that to parse out things like traces and metrics. And then we can use that data alongside the you know, rich metadata Kubernetes provides to give you like a deeper insight into what's happening. Okay. So is there a specific activity trace or data management system that you're using to gather that monitoring data? Like, are you using Prometheus? Are you using, I know you mentioned eBPF. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about the actual engineering breakthroughs that you're using to monitor Kubernetes. Yeah, happy to walk through our architecture a little bit. I think that's the interesting thing. Most of the breakthroughs come from like the awesome work that people are doing on like the Linux kernel. BCC Tools is another great platform as well for developing eBPF-based programs. But I guess like the way we're utilizing is we basically look at every open socket on a given node and we parse out all of the socket buffer basically. And from that, say, for example, like an HTTP request, we can see how long your applications are taking to respond to HTTP requests. And then we can associate that with the Kubernetes metadata. So like that socket's going to have, you know, two IPs, right? We can grab that IP, see which pod corresponds to that IP, and then we can give you information like, hey, on this given pod, it's taking, you know, this long to respond to TCP requests. Or parse out the actual like HTTP body and say like, you know, this pod saw an elevated spike in 500 errors. So... The core of the eBPF is really like tracing those networking calls, like specifically anything going over like the TCP sockets. And then we use the Kubernetes API, specifically like their Go client, which is like an awesome tool to work with to grab a lot of information about like state and all of your pods, really like all of the kind of correlation metadata about your cluster. So it's really broken down into like kind of the eBPF side of things, which is like a daemon set that runs on every node, gets like the socket information or sorry, network calls, and then a Kubernetes deployment that grabs 
bunch of like metadata from the Kubernetes API. So like everything from like, like I said, like pod information to, you know, what pods belong to which deployment, which, you know, pods are active, things like that. So we've done some shows about eBPF, but can you just give an overview for what that is? Yeah. So I think that the easiest way to think about it is you can kind of do like two really cool things with it. And that's, you can hook into Linux system calls. So every time like a system call happens, you can grab like the arguments or the return arguments, which allows you to do like really cool things with like the kind of like underlying functionality of what's going on in the kernel. Another really cool thing you can do with it is like attaching to different sockets. Specifically, we use like we attach to the traffic controller and we parse out, you know, everything going through the different sockets. And then you can add like U probes to different like binaries and basically like grab the same type of like arguments as you would with like a K probe system call. It really, it's almost like JavaScript event listeners in a sense. Like every time this function's called do X, right? Gotcha. So what would some of the function triggers be in this case if you're building a monitoring platform? Yeah. So I think a great example of this is Falco, which I think everyone should check out. It's like a security tool built like on top of eBPF that's basically looking at the system calls that are happening on your machine, the processes like that are calling them, and then like, should they be happening? So you could do like, you could look at, you know, open TCP connections. You could see which programs are being executed. You can really hook into anything that's happening. In a sense, like the sky really is the limit. I would also tell people to check out like BCC tools. There's like a huge list of tools that they have that can kind of like get you started and show you like the possibilities of of what you can do with eBPF. So if you start to use eBPF to develop a monitoring platform, is a lot of your work just defining those custom triggers and the events that are going to occur as you're listening across your infrastructure? Exactly. Like the first step is to figure out the exact system calls you want to like hook into, right? Like at its most basic, maybe you want to hook the right call and parse out all of the buffers going through there. But yeah, you need to identify like what information you want and like which calls you need to hook in order to grab that information. The next step that's can be difficult, it was a lot of work for us, is, is getting it to work across a bunch of different kernel versions because support can differ basically depending on what kernel version they're using. There's something relatively new called core compiled once run everywhere, which tries to solve a lot of these issues, but kernel support isn't great for that yet. So yeah, the f- step one is, you know, figuring out which system calls you need to hook into. Step two is figuring out how do I get it to work on like the widest array of kernels. Why is that important? I mean, isn't there a pretty standard set of kernels that it would run across? No, because the structs change between kernels. System calls can change as well. So there's definitely work that's involved getting it to work across like the different kernel versions. Like I said, there's a lot of work going in right now to kind of fix that problem with BPF type format and the core compile ones run everywhere. But I mean, just personally, we've had to do a lot of work to get it to work across different kernel versions. The verifier will also complain a lot of times on, you know, earlier kernel versions because every BPF program that's run is, is put through a verifier 
to check that like, you know, loops are bounded and the number of instructions. So something might run on 4.3, but on 4.2, the verifier is yelling at you. So those two things, like the verifier changing and, you know, the changes in system calls and structs basically leads you to a scenario where you can run into issues across different kernel versions. Can you tell me about how you fit into a more comprehensive monitoring stack? Like I imagine there's a lot of your customers that use Datadog already. Are they willing to adopt a second monitoring platform? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say typically we've had customers migrate off of Datadog, but typically we grab people before they start using something like Datadog. And like our, I guess, core value prop for a lot of them is, hey, you've got this, you know, microservice architecture. Currently you're, you know, you've got some APM set up on, or you're you're going to set up an APM on every single microservice. So, you know, maybe at a smaller company, you know, they've got 10 to 15 microservices. They're going to have to instrument every single one individually with like an whatever package manager they're using for that language. While with like Contain IQ, we're like, hey, here's this Helm chart. Install once, we'll automatically collect all of the requests and traces like across your entire cluster. So it's, I guess kind of the selling point is like, if you have a lot of microservices, you can install once instead of doing having to install on every single one. So do you have to compete with Datadog or do you feel like there is kind of room for a differentiation that can be expanded upon? Yeah, I think it's kind of building on top of like the move to microservices and the move to Kubernetes. Like if you can provide an out-of-the-box solution that instruments every microservice automatically, you're just going to save people a lot of time from having to set up like something like distributed tracing and Jaeger. And just by being kind of like Kubernetes native, you can just provide insights and have kind of a better UI and like an all-in-one view. That's a little bit better than like somebody that has to focus on every tool imaginable. So if we go a little bit deeper into the deployment, if I'm instrumenting my Kubernetes cluster with Contain IQ, what's actually happening? Are you installing agents across the infrastructure? Exactly. So there's three main agents. There's the eBPF daemon set that sits on every node. That's a little bit more involved because like we have to install like the Linux headers on every node. We need like some elevated permissions as well. Then there's the, like I mentioned earlier, the deployment or there's a single replica deployment that's collecting all of this like state information as well as like Kubernetes events and some like high level metrics. And then there's another daemon set that's like our logging agent that's collecting all of your logs as well. So you can kind of get like in one view, like, hey, here's a request. Hey, here are the logs at the time of the request or the in-context logs. And hey, here was the metrics for this container or pod at the time of the request. And this all is rolled out as like either you can install at Helm or like a collection of YAML files. I understand. And once it's deployed, does the user define all the alerting and like outliers that would be triggered or are there out of the box alerts? Yeah. So we're actually in the process of rolling this out now, basically rolling out like pre-configured alerts based on your historical data, as well as like 
common Kubernetes events. So like things like, you know, out of memory errors or, you know, node CPU limit reached or node memory limit reached. So funny enough, yeah, it's something we're like actively working on now. It's hopefully out in this sprint because it's definitely difficult for people to kind of figure out like good baselines to set like for their alerts. Do you have your own storage backend for tracking all the data that aggregates to monitoring issues and logging data? Yeah. So we use ClickHouse for like OLAP database, which is, it's been amazing to work with. Like just the performance of ClickHouse has been super impressive. And some of like the, you know, metric queries you can do with it or just blows a lot of the other tooling like out of the water. Just, you know, it's great at aggregation queries, but yeah. So all of the metric crunching, you know, looking at like, Hey, what's the P95 latency for this endpoint over the past X minutes, right? That's all done through ClickHouse. Why did you pick ClickHouse? So funny enough, I started reading about it on like a bunch of Kaku News articles. That's kind of like what got me interested. And then I read through a bunch of like benchmarks against some of the other time series databases out there. And I ran a few of my own and it just seemed to blow everything else out of the water. The compression is amazing. The query latency was great. It was breeze to work with. So yeah, kind of all of those things rolled up. It's what led me down that path. Do you have a sense for how it compares to the other, I guess, what are the competitors? I guess the, the biggest ClickHouse competitors like kind of snowflake right yeah you see a time scale oh, time gets scale, compared yeah. to them a lot as well that's at least what all the articles seem to compare against clickhouse that's if you're googling like the clickhouse comparisons it's, it's generally against time scale but yeah any of the other like time series dbs they get compared to a lot even something like a prometheus and a thanos and there's other time series based databases as well but i generally just from like reading blog articles, it seems to always be against timescale. And just from like the, the internal testing I did and, and some of the benchmarks I've seen other people publish, it, it seemed to do a much better job than most of the other tools on the market. I guess like the nice thing about timescale is that it's a Postgres extension. So you're kind of working, you're working with something you, you might already be using in a lot of cases. ClickHouse definitely, I mean, there's going to be some added overhead of, you know, managing another database. You know, it's not easy setting up like replication and all that stuff. But I think for the performance, it's definitely worth it if you're, you know, crunching a ton of data. How do you decide when to perform operations such as like aggregations on, or maybe you could just tell me some of the operations you're placing over the ClickHouse infrastructure? Like, obviously, you're logging a lot of events and monitoring data into the ClickHouse database. But what are some of the operations you're performing to do aggregations and rollups and create some meaningful value out of the high volume of data? Yeah. So I guess the, you can do some like cool things with like their, like the newer materialized views, but for the most part, we're just, we're leveraging like their, your stereotypical, like, you know, day trunk with like their, quartile and like P95 functions that are already built in to give you most of the information you're looking for. So a lot of the like aggregation type queries 
that we do, ClickHouse kind of just has the functionality built in, you know, whether it's, you know, grabbing the average for a metric over a given time period, or it's, you know, day trunking all the metrics by minute and then getting like the, you know, P95 value for that metric by that minute. It's most of the functionality you're going to need is, is built in really. So if you take the monitoring that I would have from just a Prometheus installation and compare it to what Contain IQ gives you, can you talk a little bit more about that comparison? Yeah, I would say the biggest difference is that we're capturing all of like the network requests inside of your cluster. So like you install Contain IQ and you can say, hey, what's the P95 latency for our auth endpoint in our Node.js application like we can provide that with like a one-line install and we can do that across every single application in your cluster we provide like kind of the metrics we provide are like a nice to have on top of that so you can see hey what's the you know we're seeing a spike in you know p95 latency for this endpoint was there also a corresponding spike in cpu or memory but like the core value we're providing is we're capturing every single network request we're rolling out like even MySQL and support for Postgres queries as well so that yeah, you can basically time every request in your cluster, whether it's internal, external, pod to pod, you know, whatever it may be. Have you had any interesting challenges around monitoring really, really big Kubernetes installations, like really, really wide platforms? Yeah, we have, I guess, more of an issues with like network throughput, like People who are just had, I mean, had a ton of requests going in and out of the cluster at, at any given moment and actually found like something related to like the wake up time of like in the core of like libbpf that we had to kind of like configure a little bit. And actually, like right as we were getting ready to patch, like somebody else opened a patch for it. So, like, yeah, the hardest thing is, you know, we're capturing all of these. If you're capturing every single HTTP request or like SQL request in like large clusters that are seeing a ton of activity, it's it's very difficult in the beginning for our tool to be able to keep up with those requests. And so we had to mess around with, like I said, the wake up events with like the size of the buffer when we're pushing all of this out to user space. Like there's a lot of kind of optimizations that went into that and fred who's like one of our engineers and who does an awesome job with a lot of the bpf stuff like he's even got like a calculation now like how many cycles does it take the process like per byte of you know tcp traffic does the work that you're doing feel hard enough to be defensible as a company, do you feel like what you've built with eBPF is so difficult, or maybe you can enumerate some more of the of the difficulties that it's not going to just be built into whatever name your AWS monitoring service? That's a great question. I think what we built is definitely hard. There's a ton of smart engineers out there, and I think you know most people with enough effort and bodies thrown at something, you know, really anything is kind of possible. So I don't want to toot our own horn and say that nobody could replicate it, but I mean, it did take a lot of work really like, again, I'm going to give a shout out to Fred. He's like our kernel engineer and 
he's you know made a ton of progress with me on this as well. I definitely think we're ahead of most of the other tools out there, other than maybe something like Pixie. But we kind of have to take advantage of like the kind of the I guess like the lead we're building and what we're building here, so that you know we can maintain it. Feels like UX is often a differentiator in these kind of tools or developer experience. Have there been opportunities where you've made the developer experience really shine? Yeah, I think that's it's quarter what we're building because I believe that if you focus on like a singular problem, you can do a much better job solving it. And so by focusing on, you know, just Kubernetes clusters, we can do a, a better job solving monitoring for that. So like with a tool that does everything, it's just going to be more confusing to use, harder to understand, more cluttered, and can't provide like as many out of the box, like sane defaults because they're just handling too many use cases. And so, you know, we're singularly focused on just this one use case, Kubernetes. And we try to do everything that you're going to need for your Kubernetes cluster, whether it's metrics, logs, you know, traces, latency, events, try to really give you everything you'll need like out of the box. And I think like the core reason we can do that is because we focused in on this one specific use case. So, I mean, there's entire companies devoted to each of those categories, metrics, logs, and traces. Maybe we can focus on distributed tracing, for example. Like I know how difficult it is to build distributed tracing infrastructure. How did you build that almost as just like a feature? Like full disclosure, I'm sure the tools that focus only on that one specific thing probably have like deeper functionality in that given, I guess, like set of features. So they're going to be deeper in like the kind of one specific thing. But like what we're really focused on in a high level is like, here's one Helm chart, you install it and we get you most of what you need without any of like the configuration. So it's not going to be like maybe as deep feature wise, but we try to get you like the core value without like any of the upfront instrumentation work. So there's two questions I want to ask. One is around features and one is around architecture. So how do you think the monitoring features that you'll need to build will change and how will your internal architecture change? That's a great question. Like I can talk you through like our product roadmap a little bit, but kind of the next step of things we're building is like profiling, like using eBPF and then like eventually being able to hook into the different runtimes to get information on, you know, maybe the the framework you're using and, and pulling out interesting information from that. So if we at like a high level could hook into like, you know, the function entry or exit in Python, you know, we could see every function call and how long that specific function took to execute. And so there, I think there's, there's an added overhead with that, but that's, there's some really cool things you could do with that where you could, you know, tell people latency for each, you know, function call in a given pod over time, as well as like in some cases, even like the arguments of that function call. So I think that's kind of like the pipe dream is we could do that. We could associate it with like all of the other metadata we're collecting. In the near future, we're really focused on adding like profiling and like flame graphs, uh, again, using eBPF so that you can 
you know, you install us in your, in your cluster and we're automatically, you know, based on the config options going to be profiling, you know, whatever applications you want to still. And so again, getting you like that kind of core value without any of the instrumentation work of like, you don't have to install the profiler like in your application, you know, download that you know, NPM package. We do it automatically. Can you tell me more about your own deployment, what your infrastructure looks like? And, you know, are you using Kubernetes yourself or are you managing to use like a lot of serverless functions or just tell me what, what a typical deployment looks like? Yeah. So on our end, we're using Kafka for like our kind of ingestion and ETL pipeline. So all of the information we're getting from our users gets dumped into like various Kafka topics. And then we have kind of like two main consumers, one for alerting, one for kind of like dumping that data into the various data stores and some light ETL operations. And so those are in Go. And then our backend is like a, a Node.js backend, pretty standard with Express, React on the front end for like all of the visualization, Postgres for like transactional type queries, think like, I don't know, user management and state updates, like which pods are active and how the conditions changed. And then ClickHouse for metric aggregations, log storage and retrieval. Yeah, any like analytic type query. Can you talk me through the data flow between a metric logged on the user side, stored in ClickHouse, and then sent to a dashboard? Give me the end-to-end data flow. Yeah, so... I guess like the first step is our agent like collects one of the metrics or traces. We will associate the Kubernetes metadata with that. So like in the trace example, we'll say, okay, this is the IP of the connection. What pod belongs to that IP? And then we can attach like the pod, the service and you know deployment that belongs to it. That gets sent to our systems or our producer, which you know, based on where the data is coming from, dumps it into like the corresponding topic. Then, like I said, we have the two consumers that pop the data off that topics. One of them is a Go-based, one is a JavaScript-based. The Go-based one uh, is used for like alerting. And so it will basically pop the, you know, the metric data off and say like, hey, does this match any of the alerts they've set up? You know, whether that's like a log alert, it's like, hey, has this log line occurred greater than X times over the past Y minutes? It's a metric, like it's you know, your stereotypical like threshold or percentage change based alerts. Or if it's a trace, it's calculating like the latency. On the other end, we've got the other consumer that dumps it into the storage systems. So based on the topic it's in, we know what to do with the data. So if it's like coming off of trace topic, we can, you know, dump it into like the trace table essentially in ClickHouse. If it's like a state update, which would be like, hey, this pod was deleted or this pod had its CPU limit changed or like its condition went from this to this, that will get 
sent to like Postgres where we'll update the like state of that pod currently. So a lot of the flow comes from basically which topic it's coming off with. And then the consumer has logic built in to say, based on that topic, what should I do with it? And yeah, and then like the node express backend is querying all of that data. I guess one thing I missed earlier too is we have like a Go-based microservice that sits in front of ClickHouse for like all of the ClickHouse queries. So like, and it communicates with gRPC to our node app. So from like a user's perspective, you know, you say, for example, you search, show me the P95 latency by minute for our slash, you know, auth slash, you know, whatever endpoint that will send the request from React to Express um, a node. And then that will open up like a gRPC connection with our ClickHouse operator, which communicates like the kind of like the query of what you're looking for. And then the ClickHouse operator will ping ClickHouse and say like, hey, you know, here's the data they requested. It returns it back to node, which returns it back to the front end. What are the areas of the architecture that have the most load placed on them that, that need to scale the most regularly? Yeah, so the the biggest concern for us is always the consumers, right? Because like if we see a spike in consumer lag, that means that we're not ingesting the data fast enough. So that's my biggest worry, right? Like if I get an alert about consumer lag, that's that's what's waking me up in the middle of the night. That's what, you know, that's my biggest fear. In terms of like the outside of that, like the ClickHouse or uh, operator, like the Go microservice I was talking about earlier, that's another big concern because uh, all of the inserts go through that as well. So we need to be able to scale up insults if we're getting pushed or inserts, sorry, for being pushed out of data. So measuring like the latency there is, as well as like super important. The actual like aggregation queries, we don't see a ton of latency issues there. It's really on like the kind of insertion and consumption of data. That's, you know, we have to be the most careful about. Are there places where you feel the infrastructure is potentially subject to bugs? Like, are there some particular areas of the product that you worry bugs might emerge in? Like, are there, I think there's like, you know, Every product has its domains where bugs are prone to cropping up. Are there any places where you have some canonical bugs that keep coming up? Yeah, I mean, every software has got bugs, right? Part of the part of what we're working with. But yeah, so I I would say the the hardest bugs to deal with are the eBPF related functionality in other people's clusters because it's it's not something that like we have direct insight into. So. And there's just some, there's changes between kernel versions. So like, you know, last week we spent a few days getting it to work on like 4.19 and it's hard to do when you don't have direct access. So like, that's something that like, we've definitely, I guess, fixed a bunch of bugs there before, but it's almost not even on new functionality. It's more so getting it to work across like every kernel version. Most of our ingestion pipeline has been relatively tight because we, we spent a, a lot of time on that and a lot of code reviews. Maybe like your standard bugs in the UI and in Node, but the biggest ones being 
bugs that happen on other people's infrastructure because they might have a very weird setup, right? Like they're using a CNI that no one else uses and they're using this weird kernel version that's like super old with a different CRI than we're used to. So we're actually focusing now on building out a bunch of tools to test across like the myriad of different configurations you could have, you know? So we've got, we have a Kubernetes cluster that has multiple different, each node is like a different kernel version so that we can like install our daemon set across all of them and make sure it works everywhere. Is there a feedback loop between monitoring data in contain IQ and being able to trigger changes across your infrastructure, like spinning up a a new container in response to some alert that emerges from contain IQ? No, but it's something we've been asked for and something I've been thinking about a lot, specifically around like latency. Like we're collecting the latency for all of your microservices, whether it's like, you know, an SQL query or it's a HTTP request, like where we send that data is configurable. So it would definitely be possible for someone to install us, export all of the latency information and use that with alongside like the cluster autoscaler or some autoscaler to, you know, either autoscale the number of nodes or pods based on that latency information we're collecting. With the metric information, a lot of that's like already possible, but I think for people who are looking to auto-scale based off of latency, it's, it's definitely something we could do. You just have to hook us into like another system. As we begin to draw to a close, what's the biggest challenge you're encountering right now building Contain IQ? I'll give you a kind of a jerky response and a real one after. I, I think something that we're struggling with now is keeping up with all of the feature requests from like users. It's like, hey, I would love to have this as well. Like, you know, it's just keeping up with user requests and, and keeping our current users happy. And that's something near and dear to me because, you know, I, I'm a people pleaser. So just making sure like everything's working and everyone's happy. I think that's, that's always going to be a, a struggle for me and a, and a struggle for us as a company is just, you know, pleasing everybody. From a technical standpoint, I think one of the coolest problems we're solving right now is we are basically uh, parsing out SSL connections. So like say you have encrypted traffic between pods, uh, something we're now able to do is in one of two ways, either adding a U probe to open SSL to hook into their write functions when they are encoding the packets, or if you're using like ephemeral keys for like the the actual encryption, we can pin those keys and use that to like decrypt the traffic. So yeah, in, in summary, the technical answer is parsing out socket buffer from SSL connections. And the personal answer is just keeping up with all of the different user requests. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on the show and it's been a real pleasure. Best of luck with Contain IQ. Thanks so much. It was great meeting you and talking to you and really enjoyed the conversation.